This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. York Moore, welcome to Viral Jesus. So here I am, six years old, in the bathtub with Reverend Ducky in the battleship, and all of a sudden I heard the voice of God. And no one had to tell me that it was the voice of God, I just knew. And I'm having a conversation with the living God, and my parents walk in, and the look of disdain and disappointment was just palpable. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Have you ever heard the voice of God? And if God has spoken to you, what did that voice sound like? I think it is important we talk about that more as believers because I personally think God is speaking and many of us just don't recognize what to look for. A Pew Research article showed a 2018 survey displaying that three quarters of American adults say that they try to talk to God and about three in 10 U.S. adults say God talks back. Our guest today is someone who will take us deeper into that conversation of hearing God and walking in that voice, York Moore. York Moore is the National Evangelist for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. He has a massive TikTok presence with over 200,000 followers. He's the author of Growing Your Faith by Giving It Away and Do Something Beautiful. He also recently co-authored Seen Known Love with Gary Chapman. Moore is a frequently sought after speaker and modern day abolitionist who has given the invitation for faith at the last two Urbana missions conferences and has led over 10,000 students to faith in Christ through his teaching and preaching ministry coast to coast. So I like to open every episode by doing a little bit of stalking and digging and reading to somebody back something that they posted online. I got this, York, from your Twitter. You say this, beware of a counterfeit Christian faith that is devoid of love, only finds fault in others, never content, expresses no joy, doesn't think about the salvation of souls, and promotes human responses to spiritual problems. In the end, this faith will destroy its protagonists and hearers. Tell me more about your thought process as you put that together. And as someone who comes from a non-Christian background. Was this your idea of what Christianity was and that's why you stayed away from it? I didn't think much of Christians or churches growing up. I didn't really encounter a lot of Christians. Uh, you know, most of my thought there in that tweet comes from the post-everything era. We're in the post-Trump, post-Ferguson, post-Floyd, post-COVID, and uh, the church has never been uglier. When's the last time you saw somebody give a rant on their Facebook or Instagram because they were concerned that their neighbors were lost and didn't have enough spiritual opportunities to meet Jesus? No, they're complaining about face coverings and vaccine status and these kinds of things. And so the Christian faith in America has become cantankerous. It's lost its focus. And the number one way in which we see this is a lack of love. And so in that tweet, what I'm really mm -hmm. talking about is one of the ways that you can identify a false faith, a false counterfeit gospel, 
is that it doesn't demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And what does love look like? Joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. These kinds of things are really in short supply in the church. And so that's really kind of what I'm aiming at. And Twitter is a very different audience. You know, I'm spending nearly 100% of my time engaging on TikTok. So when I write a post like that on Twitter, it's for a different kind of audience. And let's be honest, that's where the cantankerous Christians are. <laughs> they are on <laughs> Twitter. They're not on TikTok. People are much happier on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? Do you not get any trolling and stuff on oh, TikTok? No. I do. In fact, so those are my favorite posts. If I post some, in fact, I was looking at one that I did yesterday. Young fellow said that, uh, you know, believing in God is BS. And mm-hmm. then the threads underneath him were so ungodly. I had to do a video reply and just t- talk about how I actually agree with him. The idea of God for many people is just that it's an idea and that it, we should immediately get rid of it. It's terrible. It's led to all kinds of atrocities and abuses and these kinds of things. And so what I like to do, especially with what I call the intransigence, and there's a lot of that online. So intransigence is the insistence of disbelief, right? People who are hardened in their heart. That's one of the kinds of hearers that when I'm preaching in person or online, I love to engage that heart because that's where I was. As an angry mm. atheist, my nickname in my fraternity was Satan. I persecuted Christians, wrote papers against Christians. I was intransigence. And there's a lot of that online. And I think what's disarming is when you have somebody who actually responds, number one, content creators almost always never actually respond to their uh, their followers or their soon-to-be followers, as I like to call them. And number two, they actually don't respond in love. And so, you know, I have 200,000 followers on TikTok, and many, many of them are very avid followers, and they're watching how I'm engaging with hard heart. Post last week, somebody said, F God. Just randomly, I was, you know, it was a, a post that didn't do well at all, but this guy popped on there and he just he just said, F God. So, oh, this is a great opportunity. And so I did a whole post on, you know, dropping some love on this guy in the comments and engaging him. And and uh, it was just a really great teaching moment. I think we have an opportunity on social um, yeah. to actually disciple people on what it looks like to actually engage the heart and not just argue over 120 characters. I am so excited to have you on this program for reasons that you've just kind of shared, but also our listeners are people who really care about communication and content creation. And what does it look like? The reality is the priesthood of all believers is always true, but especially online, you may be the only Christian on somebody else's feed. That's right. And so the things, and what you just said, the things that you even respond to somebody in the comment, people are always watching. And so I'm so excited to dig into this conversation with you today. You also do a lot of work with college campuses, which is a demographic that I serve and I'm super passionate about. So this is, I'm going to ask you a question that I actually hate when I go on podcasts and people ask me this question, but for this particular interview, I think we have to go all the way through your story so that we can get to some of the awesome things that you're doing today. So if you could just share with us some of like your childhood and your background that led you to who you are today. Yeah, well, thanks for asking. I grew up uh, homeless on the streets of Detroit, uh, off and on, out of homelessness. My dad uh, and my mom were teachers. They had master's degrees, but drugs were a part of the, Mm. the situation. And so that always leads to other problems. And homelessness was one of those. And so in and out of homelessness, uh, when we weren't homeless, my parents were also artists. That was their real full-time gig, but that doesn't pay the bills. So they were also school teachers. And uh, they had a, a sign in the front of the home that said, the Moors, the atheists. And we had a barrel on the side of our house for burning Bibles. And I'll never wow. forget, I actually had my first encounter with God 
I was six years old living in that house with that sign in the front. And can I just say that when we provoke God like that, God will actually show up in ways that, you know, are unusual. And so here I am six years old in the bathtub with rubber ducky in the battleship. And all of a sudden I heard the voice of God. Now, no one had to tell me that it was the voice of God. I just knew. Wow. And I'm having a conversation with the living God and my parents walk in and the look of disdain and disappointment was just palpable. And they said, who are you talking to, Rand York? My first name is Rand. I'm named after an atheistic philosopher named Ian Rand. And I said, uh, well, I'm talking to God. And they said, well, we thought we explained that there is no God. And people who would believe that God exists, they're, they're fabricating and so that they can have an easier life. That It's almost, almost like a crutch, you know, the whole mental crutch idea. And so I said, there's no God. And they said, no, there's no God. And so I let them walk out of the bathroom and I had to finish the conversation that I was in. So I looked back up at the ceiling and I said, well, God, my parents say you don't exist. So I have to stop talking to you right now. And that began the first day of the next 14 years of living life under the assumption that there is no God and mm. uh, fell into the normal, you know, early sexual promiscuity, early drinking, all of the stuff that goes along with a life with no moral center and, uh, and continued on that. And when I went to uh, high school, I averaged a straight D average in ninth and 10th grade. And I remember waking up one uh, summer morning in between 10th and 11th grade thinking to myself, you know, if something doesn't change in my life, I'm going to wind up on the streets, in jail with HIV or some other disease, or I'm going to wind up worse, like my dad on drugs. And none of those ideas were really appealing to me. So I made a change in the flesh. I had nothing to do with God. I cut my hair. I changed my wardrobe. I came back to 11th grade, a transformed person, applied mm -hmm. myself, got a straight A average. Now, for those mathematicians who are listening, a straight A and a straight D average <laughs> together gets you not very much, let alone enough to go to the greatest university in America, the University of Michigan. <laughs> so, but I applied and uh, I got uh, rejected, of course. And my mom took that rejection letter. My mom is a bulldog. And so she went up to the admissions office, true story. And she begged them to let me in. Wow. And uh, she convinced them to give me a chance. So I was entered as a probationary status I had to take some remedial classes. But let me tell you, I fell in love with the university and I've never left. I started my college wow. career in 1987, and I've never left. And uh, so I've been on the college campus all these many years. But it was during that time I thought, well, what's the purpose of life? Where does meaning come from? If there is no God, is meaning just a social convention? Is it a construct? And if that's true, uh, what does that mean for life? And so these were the questions that I went to college with. And so I became an honor student in multiple departments, and my love was philosophy. And I uh, became an honor student in the philosophy department and wrote papers against Christians, argued against Christians. I pledged a fraternity, Kappa Alpha Psi, Fraternity Incorporated. My nickname in, in that fraternity was Satan because I persecuted Christians. Wow. And um, I wasn't a normal student. <laughs> I wasn't going to get a good job or to find the girl of my dream. I was going to discover the meaning of the universe. And mm. I thought of all the you know, disciplines, the philosophy department would probably be the place to, to go. And boy, was I wrong. It was a dark dark place. And uh, I'll never forget, at the end of my third year, I finished my honors thesis and I handed it in to my mentor, who was a, a friend of mine, a professor. And and I, I walked out of there, just my chest was full of pride and arrogance. And I walked to my car and a blast of cold Michigan air swept the parking lot. And I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I wouldn't have used those words at that point, but I heard a voice. And the voice challenged me and said, if you really believe everything that you written and written in your thesis and why do anything at all my thesis was basically an articulation of nihilism when you die you cease to exist there's nothing 
that you just blink into nothingness. And um, I said, well, you know, I don't have an answer for that. And so I said, well, I should probably consider that. And so I went on this quest, a spiritual quest. I mm. interviewed atheists, or not atheists, I interviewed Buddhists and Christians and Muslims. I, I went on an interviewing spree and I read all kinds just of Just personal, books. just for yourself. That's right. Started okay. reading the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Bible, uh, interviewing you know people. I, at the time I was uh, engaged to a, a Christian I didn't know there was such a thing as a cultural Christian, but I was uh, engaged to a Christian, never faithful. So I had uh, lots of other ladies and I had a pastor friend and um, only because the ladies at church seemed to be a little bit easier than the ladies out, you know, in the world. And so I had a pastor friend. I'll never forget. I sat down with Pastor Dave. I said, Pastor Dave, how do you know that God exists? And he said, well, we don't really know if the Bible is the word of God or if Jesus was really ever born of a virgin. What does it really matter? And I thought to myself, here's a man who's dedicated himself to an idea, and he's teaching other people about this idea, and he's thrown out the very foundation for his right. entire worldview. And so I said, this guy is bankrupt. He has absolutely nothing to offer me. And so he gave me a stack of books when I went on my way. And the story kind of comes to a conclusion. <clears throat> I, I, came to, I came to the conclusion a couple weeks into this journey that there is, there is really no hope. And I thought, well, the very last thing I can do is pray. Maybe God doesn't speak through people. Maybe God will speak directly to me. And so I crossed my arms and I said, dear Allah, Buddha, Krishna, Jesus, he, she, it, whoever you may be, show me. And I was looking for the angel Moroni to show up at the front door, <laughs> algorithm, you know, to drop from the sky, something that demonstrates with certitude that there is a God. And when none of those things really happened, I became convinced that I should kill myself. Mm. And, uh, you know, if there is no meaning, when you die, you cease to exist. Why? Why do anything? Why strive through this difficult life? I remember sitting in the movie theater watching the, uh, the movie, this shows how old I am. I wasn't watching it on stream or on DVD. I was in the movie theater <laughs> watching The Little Mermaid on Christmas Eve. And I got this epiphany. There is no God. There's just The Little Mermaid. Here we are in a Christian nation on the verge of a national Christian holiday. And we're just entertaining ourselves to death. There is no God. There's just The Little Mermaid. And so I dropped my fiance off and I got my, my little red cap of sports car going about 90 miles an hour down the freeway. And my plan was to smash it on the viaduct near our home in a city called Inkster. And as I got my car going about 90 miles an hour, fully intending to kill myself, in that moment of decision, a presence and a power filled the car and grabbed that steering wheel and steered mm. me to safety. See, I'm the original Jesus take the wheel. I should be getting royalties from that song, but <laughs> haven't seen any checks yet. So I go, I go home, I fall asleep in a, a cold sweat. I wake up in a cold sweat. And I said, for the first time, I prayed a prayer of desperation. I said, God, if that was you last night, I need to know right now because I'm still going to kill myself. So I walked into the next room. I have two older brothers who were also students at Michigan, and we were all home for the holidays. And one of them had brought a picture frame of the poem, Footprints in the Sand. And I had read mm. this simple story. I thought it was nonsense and a Hallmark card at best. And But this time I'm reading this, and it's a big picture frame, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading this, and I, I hear the same voice that spoke to me when I was six. I, he I heard the same voice that I heard when I was outside of Michigan. And God said, number one, I do exist. Number two, I'm the reason why you exist. Now, those two data points for a philosopher would be all, all that you would need. Everything else is a derivative. But the third thing sent me in tears to the other room. He said, number three, I'm the one who kept you from killing yourself last night. So I ran into mm -hmm. the other room. And, uh, you know, I mean, that meant that God knew who I was. He was yes. involved in my story. And he cared enough to actually engage. And I will never forget, I, I looked up at the ceiling and I said, God, from this day forward, I'm going to live for you. And uh, I gave myself to some unknown God that morning. The one good thing that pastor friend put an addendum on it 
he gave me a stack of books and it was Christmas break. And so I chose the shortest one and it was a legitimate book called God is never absent. And I read it cover to cover that night and it told me about sin and how I was separated from God because of sin and how God sent his son, Jesus to earth to die on the cross for my sin. And that if I would confess him as my leader and my Lord, I could have new life. And as I'm reading this book, it was the same voice. I slipped down on my knees and that night I gave my, my life to Jesus that night. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19 and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. Can I ask, when you say you heard God, is it an audible voice for you? Is it an internal voice? I just want people who are wondering for themselves, is God talking to me? What was that experience like for you? Yeah, it's even better than an audible voice. So people who have heard the voice of God, uh, the best way to describe it, it's as if your soul is being saturated with sound. It's as if your soul is being immersed in a presence that doesn't need your ears to speak clearly. Mm. And, you know, thank God I've only heard the voice of God maybe five or six times like that in my life, because every time you hear the voice of God, everybody says, oh, I want to hear the voice of God. I don't think you really do, because when he speaks, it's so incredibly dis disruptive. He tells mm -hmm. you to do things like go to Cambodia and work with, uh, you know, sex slaves, uh, which, mm -hmm. I, which I've done. He tells you to do things like break up with your fiance of seven years, which I've done. When God speaks, it's always like, not a good thing from your flesh perspective. <laughs> it's a necessary <laughs> interruption, right? Yes, that he that's has exactly to. right. <laughs> Interesting. Talk to us about how you got into campus evangelism and ministry. From that story, from praying yep. there on the floor. Yeah, I immediately started sharing my faith. And I'm a ENT, really? ENTJ type three on the Enneagram, you know, type A. I'm I'm the climber. And so I immediately started sharing my faith. Um with my fraternity brothers, my professors, strangers on the street, invisible people, dogs. I mean, literally, I went all in for, for Jesus. <laughs> I started I a chapter of Campus Crusade for Christ on our chapter wow. on our campus. I started a ministry. For okay, wait. Students. So your family, your brothers, your parents, are they like, what has happened to York? Yeah, absolutely. They were hoping it was a phase. They said I was in a cult. And uh, <laughs> it's, it was a hard go those first few years. And then over the years, I've been able to lead for my mother and, and uh, uh, two of my brothers to Christ. And wow. my older brother just came to Christ on his own. Wow. So it's been a wonderful story. But I, immediately, I started doing these things and preaching, which I was never you know, interested in public speaking. I was an academic. I was going to go to MIT and do my PhD work in artificial intelligence. 
and uh, philosophy. And so speaking was a new thing, but I started preaching almost right away. I started preaching and, um, you know, I just felt the power of God and I saw people's lives changed and I was sold, but I wasn't really interested in going into full-time ministry. So I started a couple of businesses, um, was successful in business. I ran a stats department for a marketing research firm. I was all in for business, but my side hustle was preaching the gospel. And over the course of uh, a few years, I started realizing that this was God's call on my life. And so I left the business and let go of my clients and came on staff full-time with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I've been with InterVarsity now for 27 years. And in those 27 years, I've just seen incredible, incredible fruit. InterVarsity is an 85-year-old organization. And uh, there was a 10-year period where we saw double-digit increases for conversions year over year, especially with what I call early millennials. And uh, we're not doing so well, I believe, with uh, late millennials and early Gen Z, but we can get into that later. The uh, The reality is um, InterVarsity is a wonderful organization reaching you know, generations past into uh, the college campus. And now I've started a, a coalition, co-founded the coalition with 85 organizations called the Every Campus Movement. And uh, it's a coalition of denominations, parachurch organizations, for-profit, non-profit organizations, uh, we do a lot of work with Glue, Scott Beck over at Glue. So it's a data-driven uh, coalition that really is going after unreached campuses and uh, longing for a revival on those campuses. So, What do you think, what is the disconnect? What is more difficult about reaching college students today versus me? I, I would be an, a millennial student. What are you seeing in the chasm there? I would say it's actually easier, but uh, we're not positioned well. Most of the organizations that did well with early millennials haven't made the transition to late millennials and early Gen Z. And here's what I mean. Early millennials, uh, you know, I did 15 years of data trafficking work. I worked with the U.S. House, state attorney generals all over the country, worked with NGOs in Phnom Penh. And we would do these big campaigns. Some some of them were $100,000, million campaigns. We did them all over the country. And we saw thousands of students come to Christ. And because the the narrative of a bigger gospel that had kingdom implications, that had on-ramps for millennials to see themselves in the story of God and to belong to the kingdom before they believed in the kingdom, that all made sense. That's the air we breathed. And that was the meteoric rise of InterVarsity's impact and influence with non-Christians during those 10 years. Then a subtle shift began to happen. And I think much of this we blame on COVID. Everybody mm. blames everything on COVID. And so all of a sudden, our evangelism numbers began to, to sink, and, and now they've really dropped significantly. And I, I think part of what's happened, if you look at late millennials, late millennials have a different experience. They, their lived experience is Ferguson, Floyd, yeah. Trump, the yeah. uh, complicit sellout of the uh, uh, evangelical world to Christian nationalism. And now they've experienced COVID. Right. Yeah. And so all of these forces have come together to really change the narrative. The, uh, you know, so you're seeing amongst late millennials uh, movements like the Exvangelical Movement, yeah. uh, which are some of my best friends on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> they, they definitely increase the engagement. And so I'm always happy to see the Exvangelicals. Um, <laughs> but those kinds of conversations and dialogue actually don't play with Gen Z. In fact, I believe that we are standing on the precipice of perhaps one of the greatest evangelistic opportunities in generations. Because Gen Z, Xers have real religious trauma and baggage. Right. right? 
Early millennials have borrowed religious trauma and baggage from their extra parents. Late mm. millennials, they have all of the, the, the complexity of this world they've just experienced, and they're wondering about a meta-narrative, and they're not looking to the church to fill that meta-narrative, right? And there's many stories we can tell in terms of how we saw that play out in Ferguson and, and in Floyd and other monumental moments where the, the church was absent, the voice was absent because it was distracted with, with Trump and these kinds of other things. Gen Z doesn't have any of those. Hmm. Gen Z was sitting in the backseat of their mom. In fact, when I uh, do my TikToks, I do almost every single one of them for my imaginary friend, 14-year-old Nick, who's in the backseat of his mother's SUV, going from school to soccer practice. That's who I'm speaking to. And Nick doesn't care about exvangelicals. He doesn't care about nuance and contextualization. So to make a long story short, I think uh, if I could summarize that, churches and ministries that did well in engaging the complexities that were demanded by millennials are going to find it a very hard transition to be bilingual. They need to continue to engage that audience segment, but Gen Z is a much simpler conversation in some regards. The other thing I would say about Gen Z is that every voice in their lives, whether it's for a Playtex commercial or their favorite musical artist, or whatever it is, is teaching them the gospel truth. Everything has no nuance. Everything is just blunt force trauma. It's just who can speak the loudest, the longest. And now the church segment that did well with millennials wants to bring a nuanced, highly contextualized conversation. And if you watch on TikTok, that is not reaching the young segment. Hmm. What's reaching the young segment is very basic, very clear, very direct communication around simple truths. And that's what I've built my brand on. And I always consider myself a baby TikToker. I just jumped on on July 5th with zero followers and and now I'm up to 200,000, but I'm still a baby TikToker. I'm friends with David Ladding and Jay Peterson, some of these other famous uh, TikTokers, and I'm learning things from them. But I'm telling you, I'm just at the beginning of this journey, but these are the things that I'm learning along the way. And what inspired you to say, I'm going to go to the TikTok, which a lot of adults have really struggled with. Yeah. Well, I'm 52, and uh, I've been preaching the gospel now professionally for 27 years, and then, you know, before I joined ministry for many other years before that. And I just got so sick and tired of waiting for COVID to be over to preach the gospel. I said, I got to do something. So I I got on a plane and flew myself down to spend some time with a, a guy named Brian Barcelona, who started the Jesus Clubs. He's the founder of One Voice Ministry. It's a phenomenal ministry reaching Gen Z for Christ. I'm very fond of the circuit riders. I do a lot of work with the circuit riders. They're friends of mine. And I began to see their influence on social. I'm not a real fan of Instagram. You know, you, let's say you have a good post and you got 500 views. That's good on, po- on TikTok. I had a, a post a couple nights ago, did 300,000. But on Instagram, if you have 500 views, you know what Instagram says? How about you give us some money and we'll, we'll show right. your post even more? That's not how TikTok works. Right. You know, I, I get paid. Not a lot, but I get paid. So the money flow is in the opposite direction and uh, on TikTok. But when I get jumped on the platform, I began to immediately sense there was an opportunity as I began to get into the comments. If I spend three or four hours a day on my account, the majority of that is engaging with people in the comments. Mm -hmm. Uh, It might take me an hour to produce my content and push it out. I post three to five a day. and uh, But I spend my time in the comments because that's where that's where the real ministry can happen. Mm-hmm. And now I've solicited a, uh, a team 
of people who can join me in the comments, real life people, in-person people that I'm connected to that are going to jump in the comments and help me uh, follow up. I also, through the Jesus Clubs, have uh, been able to engage my audience with in-person opportunities through clubs in their, in their high schools, in their junior high schools, Bibles, discipleship resources to the Jesus Club app. So there are lots of ways in which you can leverage the TikTok platform to actually deepen engagement. Your video post is just one of many things. Now right. it's the front door. You, you don't have these other opportunities unless you actually have the front door of high quality, consistent content. But uh, that's really what kind of got me in was just kind of boredom and just, uh, you know, seeing the opportunity. And when I jumped in, I immediately began to see a difference. Like, you know, a bad post was like 2000. And I thought, well, if I had a post on, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram that had right. 2000, I would have wrote a letter about like it would have been <laughs> the best part of my week. Now it's like, oh, my gosh. I only got 5,000 views on that. What, what did I do wrong? The algorithm hates me. You know, right. So. <laughs> I'm doing a new thing this season where I ask people on Twitter, if they got to sit down with the person I'm talking to, what would they ask them? I got several questions for you. This one is from Marsala007. She says, when I was in student evangelism, there was a very technique that was not very relational. Do you think the love that Christians have for each other is the best technique that we have? Well, love can be embodied in many different packages, but unless you actually have a vehicle for sharing your faith, if all you're doing is being a loving person, that's not enough. So Paul's first letter mm -hmm. in the Bible, for Thessalonians, in the very first chapter of his very first letter, he says these words. He says, when our gospel came to you, it didn't come simply with words. Now, it came with words. And so this whole fallacy that, you know, you preach the gospel and you use words when necessary, it's unbiblical. It always comes with words, right? But it didn't come simply with words. It came with power. We mm. demonstrate power through our engagement with common good needs like poverty alleviation, food insecurity, clean drinking water, fighting for the marginalized, protecting the rights of widows and orphans. That's a demonstration of the power. And then he says it came through people of conviction and through the Holy Spirit. And as Westerners, we like to read that verse from Paul as a series of four propositions, but that's not how it is. It's a, it's a polarity dyad. It's two sets of polarities. When the gospel comes, it comes through word and power. That's one polarity dyad. And a polarity dyad is our two things that exist simultaneously in tension with one another. They're not opposites, but they have a symbiotic relationship. So when we preach the gospel, it's accompanied with power. How do we demonstrate power? We engage people in real life common good issues. And then it came through people of conviction, through human effort, activism, and the Holy Spirit, divine intervention, divine mm -hmm. power. And so when we, when we make a choice to actually choose between a vehicle of communication and being authentic people of love or deep conviction, we're actually making a false dichotomy. And you don't have to choose. You, you need to be creative. So maybe the method that this user is talking about may not have been used properly or maybe it was flawed. I mean, there's you know lots of flawed techniques of evangelism, but really embodying that method with love. So I remember coming back from a conference in, oh, this was probably 2004, somewhere in there. And one of the speakers on the platform said, we need to stop preaching the gospel immediately. Millennials are no longer interested in hearing the word of God preached. I thought, well, this is, this is insane. 2000 years, the gospel has been preached. And so I said, I came back and I was directing an evangelism team. And I said, our job right now is to create a proclamation evangelism tool that will help us 
to engage millennials. At that time, we were using the word uh, postmoderns. And uh, over the course of the year, we created uh, one of the most electric methods that uh, InterVarsity has ever seen called proxy stations, P-R-O-X-E, intentionally misspelled. And uh, they were these interactive art stations where a guide, instead of an evangelist, a guide could walk a person through an encounter with the gospel using interactive art. And these things were so explosive. We had people lining up to be evangelized. We had one person come up and they said, uh, you know, I know what you're doing here. I don't really like it, but this thing is so cool. I got to do it. We had people skipping class to be evangelized. These things went international. Mm. And so all that to say, as an illustration, I think the method always has to be delivered through a messenger who has that deep conviction that Paul talks about, yeah. incorporates a love for the hearer and a love for God. We need yeah. to be present whole people. Jeff Brady, 1985, asked, for all the negative talk about young people and the next generation, what do you think are some reasons we can be optimistic and excited about the future of our church? The openness that's there. You know, I've already talked about, you know, Gen Z being open by and large. They are free from religious trauma. They're living in a very different world where many of the things that were in contention for early millennials have been concluded on. Uh, human sexuality, various uh, conclusions about social justice and the role thereof. and uh, But they're in a world where they're still looking for a, a larger story. One of the mistakes when people began to notice that we were moving into a postmodern era is that they concluded too quickly that postmoderns weren't interested in a metanarrative, a larger story. And it wasn't the case. They were just not interested in the Judeo-Christian metanarrative. So if you actually look on social right now, what's popping off is certain Asian metanarratives, particularly as delivered through anime. Anime is huge. Anime has made a massive comeback with Gen mm. Z. And they're not just consuming the content. They're actually studying the philosophy. I was just on my PS5. I'm a gamer. I was just playing with a bunch of young guys. And they were talking about this treatise that they were reading on this particular anime show. I don't watch anime, but it was one of the famous ones. And I just couldn't believe the level of depth of philosophic engagement mm. that they were engaged in as they were analyzing this anime. And so I would say that we need to actually tell the gospel with deep conviction, with a level of passion and sincerity to Gen Z and help them understand the bigger story. So some of my posts that have done the best are the most surprising to me. They're mm. the ones that actually make sense of problems in the bigger picture of spiritual life, you know, problems of why the sin exists and why did God have to do the kinds of things that he did in order to solve for that problem? Mm -hmm. Like, I wouldn't think that that would be, you know, the kinds of posts that would be engaging for Gen yeah. Z, but those are the ones that always do best. You know, when the megachurch began its rise, they, they were engaging boomers and early Xers. And uh, they were solving for problems like, why does my life suck? And why did my parents get divorced? And, you know, is there evil in the world? And all of these other kinds of, those are not the questions that Gen Z are asking. They're also not asking the extra questions of the evidence for the history of the Bible or the evidence for the resurrection. Mm. Although there is some, a little bit of a comeback for that. If you look at those kinds of engagements on social, by and large, if you look at a user's profile, you're talking to an Xer, right? Mm. You're talking to an Xer. But you're talking to, you know, Gen Z, you're having a whole different conversation. 
So I think the opportunity is there. I mean, we're stepping into an opportunity, I think, right now that it's unprecedented. And I'm excited to be a part of it. Coffee Catherine says, what are you seeing are some of the deepest needs that college students have today? Well, we would like to know the same thing because they've been missing <laughs> from our campuses for the last two years. Mm. I remember moving my son out in the middle of the night, weeping in tears when the, the campus was closed. They gave us six hours to vacate the property. And, um, you know, it was just a very hard time. Our college campus ministries across the country have just been decimated. I mean, if you think about two mm. years where your student leaders who you poured into right, right, discipled, right. And now they they haven't gone to the camps, the conferences, the leadership development, you know, events. And now we're coming back and we've been back on campus for the most part throughout the country for this, for the majority of the school year. You know, I think everything is up in the air. What we have seen is that there is a hunger for community. So every time we are able to activate on campus and it kind of comes and goes, administrators say, well, no social clubs, now social clubs, off-campus social clubs, mass gatherings are happening all over the place. So you go to Fraternity Row at Michigan, every single you know night there are gatherings. Students are very, very hungry for in-person connection, for community. Mm-hmm. You think about living for a year in your mom's basement again right. during the early COVID, people couldn't wait. Catching COVID and suffering through COVID is worth the cost for many undergraduate students. But to answer your question, I don't think we really know. I don't think we're, we're really going to know mm-hmm what student culture is and what the student culture needs are going to be until probably this time next year. I think it's going to take a full year exiting COVID for us to really get our bearings. York Moore is the National Evangelist for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. He has a massive TikTok community with over 200,000 followers. And York is the author of Growing Your Faith by Giving It Away and Do Something Beautiful. York, I end every interview by asking my guest this same question. Virtually all credible historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, agree that there is plenty of evidence that a man named Jesus actually lived and walked this earth 2,000 years ago. How can we, 2,000 years later, best communicate who Jesus was and what his mission is today? Mm, Knowing him. Mm. If you know know Jesus Christ, he lives in you and through you. And so walking with him, he is not an idea. He is a person. And if you know him, your life will never be the same. And people around you will recognize that there is something supernatural in you working through you. Thanks, York Moore, for joining us for this episode. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral. And this is where I give you some direct strategies you can implement into your real life that will help you be a better communicator and connector both online and off. Here is your growing viral homework. So I want to walk through some ways God communicates with us. One, God can speak to us audibly. Some examples are what we read in scripture about God calling the prophet Samuel or God directly speaking to Moses. Another way God speaks to us is through the Bible. We call it the Word of God because we get to see the character and posture of God through the stories of how He responds to His people. God also speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. God speaks through the internal promptings. John 14, 26 says that the Spirit teaches you and helps you remember what God has done. And God also speaks through people. 
One of the best ways I have heard God is through human beings who bear his image. There have been times that someone says something and I literally get goosebumps because I know that God just co-labored with humanity to reach me. If you want to hear from God, my advice is that you probably already are. Maybe you just haven't recognized the ways he's communicating. But Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. A prayer I pray a lot is God, give me eyes to see and ears to hear that I may recognize your hand in my life and your image in the lives of others. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Next episode, we talk to my friend from the Varna Group, Joe Jensen, about what the research is saying in regards to pastoral burnout. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.